could stand, but it'd be a little awkward. So. All right, well, I selected this particular reading because Paul actually did exactly what the author uh, encouraged his audience to do. Paul had some weight. He had some sin that was keeping him from running with endurance. Uh, he was extremely proud about his ethnicity. Oh, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. I'm not just a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And of the tribe of Benjamin. Not all Jews could trace their genealogy at this time, but he could. And then he continues to express things that at one time he had boasted in and thought himself quite well. He said, I was not just a Hebrew of Hebrews and of the tribe of Benjamin. I was, uh, I was circumcised the eighth day. And oh yeah, according to the law, the law of God, I was blameless. And Paul said before that, he says, if anybody has room to boast about things of their past, he says, it is me. And then he goes on this thing. So Paul knew at one time in his life that he had some baggage, some sin, some weight, extremely proud of ethnicity, nationality. Because of his religious accomplishments, he was just unbearably self-righteous. Not something that was uncommon for a Pharisee. But in Paul's testimony, he identifies the weight and the sin in his life, and then he, he lays it aside so that he can pursue perfection in Christ. He puts it aside. Okay? The same, it's the same perfection that we've been talking about in Hebrews 12, this coming to completion, this, this wholeness. And you may remember that the perfecting of the saint is the scope of Hebrews chapter 12, as we've said. Okay? But then in verse 13, Paul says, but one thing I do, but one thing I do, and then he tells us he did two things. That's always nice. He said, I'm forgetting the things that are behind me, and I'm pressing on to what is in front of me. I'm forgetting the things that are behind me, and I'm pressing on to what is in front of me. He was forgetting about all of his weight and sin, leaving it in the dust so that he could press on to the prize that was in front of him. And that prize he calls Christ Jesus. He is the prize. Okay. And so Paul did exactly what the author of Hebrews uh, told his audience to do. Laid aside his sin. He was looking to Jesus. How interesting that we would find consistency throughout the Bible. Yeah. But while Paul said, one thing I do, uh, it only actually appears that he did two things. Laying aside and looking to Jesus uh, are just two sides of one coin. Okay, two sides to one coin. The word for looking in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, means to look away from one thing in order to fix your gaze on something else. Looking away from one thing in our text, weight and sin, and then looking to Jesus. It's one thing that accomplishes two things. One coin two sides, or perhaps two birds, one stone. Whatever, I don't care what it is. I just want what Paul had, amen? Yeah. So in order to run with endurance, Paul had to turn his gaze away from the things that entangled him so that he could fix his gaze upon Jesus who would perfect him. I, that is so important. Taking your eyes off the things that will entangle you so that you can look to Jesus who can perfect you. I think Paul understood... Uh, a principle that we use in baseball. If you're going to hit the ball, you've got to keep your eyes 
You don't know this, this <laughs> saying? It's time for interaction, okay? You need to affirm me a little bit here. Yeah, I've got to keep my eye on the ball. Well, the funny thing is, is that principle works two ways, one for good and the other for bad, both of which I think Paul understood well. Let me illustrate it this way. A friend of mine who is a driving instructor has learned not to tell his students to look out for something on the road that he doesn't want them to hit because they do exactly what he said. They look out for it by looking at it and then they run over it. The dead animal. You ever seen the dead animal that's completely flat? It's because of the, the driver instructors. Look out for that! Ba-bump. They go over it again and again and again. Yeah. They look out for it, and when they do that, they hit it. They fix their gaze on the very thing they're trying to avoid. Yeah. Well, if you keep your eye on the ball, it's very likely that you'll hit the ball, even if it's the wrong ball. Your eyes got to be in the right place. Paul knew not to fix his gaze on the things that would entangle him. He knew that he needed to leave them behind and fix his gaze on his intended target. And too many people spend too much time concentrating on the very thing that entangles them, and they either remain entangled or they get entangled again and again and again and again. They get in a rut. I've always been intrigued by the many you know, substitutes that our culture has come up with for Christ. Substitutes, an endless supply of philosophies and remedies and programs that never provide what they promise. You know, those who struggle or continue to struggle with substance abuse often attend you know, these various multi-step programs that in many ways just talk about the ills of addiction. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's healthy. Others who struggle with porn commit themselves to programs that just talk about preventing porn. I don't think that's healthy. There's just no end to the various remedies out there. And, and some of what they do is, I don't think is all that bad, but if Christ is not at the forefront, it can't be all that good. It can't be all that good, not ultimately. Yeah. Too often the remedies set our gaze on the wrong thing. For example, people that need to forgive often dwell on the offense committed against them. And instead of forgiving, they get bitter. They sulk. They've got their eyes on the wrong ball. If you're trying to create peace with your spouse, you can't be a fault finder, a perpetual corrector, or an I told you sower. We have to pursue the things that make for peace, Paul says, by edifying them, Romans 14, 19. When you're trying to be a blessing to those you're serving, as we've been called to do, you can't focus on their faults or how they don't appreciate you. That will just cause you to burn out. Yeah. Yeah. If you struggle with porn, you shouldn't spend too much time talking about porn after you've confessed it. Talking about it is too close to thinking about it. It's a stumbling block. Same goes for chemical addiction. The discussion about it comes from thoughts about it, which are called triggers, yeah, which perpetuate the struggle. If you set your gaze on the wrong things called weight and sin, you might just hit what you're trying to avoid. Yeah. But if you're going to hit your intended target, you need to first take your gaze off the unintended target. Yeah. Verse 2 in the New Living Translation says that we lay aside every weight and sin and we run with endurance 
by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We look away in order to look to so that we can run to our destination, who is Christ. We look away so that we can run to. Well, we can't, of course, see Jesus with our eyes, so we, we have to fix our minds and our affections upon him, our affections. We have to narrow our focus to a single focus. Remember what Paul said. He said, one thing I do. Is that a pretty narrow focus? One thing I do. And in the text, we realize that Paul's focus was Jesus, the great object of his affections. Nothing else can account for his spiritual success or the things he accomplished on this planet before he went home. Nothing else can. Yeah. We cannot focus on the things we need to lay aside. There's just too much risk involved. Ask Lot's wife. She knew about that. If you're not familiar with Lot's wife's story, uh, they were to be leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, and God said, don't look back, just flee. But her heart longed for Sodom and all that it provided her flesh. And when she turned, God gave her over to it, and he snuffed her. There's too much at risk. There's too much at risk. Looking to Jesus will require that you take your gaze off those weights and sins, the distractions and temptations, so that with all your powers, you can set your affections upon Jesus. This is how we escape the entanglement of sin. This is how we... uh, gain and maintain our freedom from sin, and this is the only way that we can run to Jesus. But if the things of the world have your attention, you're gonna run headlong into them. If you're not currently entangled, it's just a matter of time before you're enslaved. Those in and of the world know no freedom. They know no freedom. Jesus said, anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And, you know, Jesus' use of grammar indicates that if, that if anyone is in the continuous habit of committing sin, they are the slave of it, enslaved to it. That's why scripture talks about Jesus, actually his blood being the ransom money to purchase our freedom out of slavery. Yeah. But then Jesus said, but if the son makes you free, you shall be free Indeed. So if anyone desires the freedom from the entanglement of sin, they must take their affectionate gaze away and turn it completely to the one who grants freedom. You have to turn all of your gaze to the one who hated your sins so badly and loved you so deeply that he endured the cross in order to deliver you. That's who the author is calling our attention to. Yeah. Jesus didn't go to the cross just to pay the penalty for sin. He endured the cross to reconcile the sinner to himself. It was about relationship. John said, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4.10. So when the penalty for sin was paid, the, the path for reconciliation was made. Yeah. Because of Christ's sacrifice, the believing sinner As Paul says to the Ephesians, they can be brought near to God. The hostility is gone, and now there can be fellowship. There can be mutual love. And then that initial faith 
as it grows, will be perfected as we yield to the Lordship of Christ. And true yieldedness always manifests itself through obedience to God's word. It always does. But, you know, because of sin, looking to Jesus, uh, and I mean sin in us, looking to Jesus requires intent, determination, and discipline. All those things that we love. How many of you guys love the spiritual disciplines? Well, some of them we probably like. Who likes fasting? I don't mean for dietary purposes. <laughs> when I fast for people or for wisdom and stuff, all I can think about is eating. I hate thinking about eating. I only like eating. <laughs> thinking about it. It's like putting, you know, the the carrot out in front of the horse, you know. It's a terrible thing. So, yeah. But looking to Jesus requires that intent, determination, discipline. We have to fight for it because of what is in us. I mean, perhaps you've noticed that your carnal nature with its affections are fighting against Christ and his will. Yes. Sin loves to be entangled. It loves it. It loves it. And only Christ can set you free and maintain your freedom. The regenerate man longs for Christ, but the old man has an aversion to him. R.C. Sproul says, there is yet a corner of the soul that hates God. That's why it's a struggle for us. Sin in us. We need Christ. We need to set our affections on him. That sounds depressing, but, you know, wherever sin abounds... Paul says that grace superabounds in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He's saying that the power of grace far exceeds the draw of sin, but he also says that we must avail ourselves to it. Again, looking away that we might look to Jesus. But how do we practically set our gaze upon Jesus so that he can perfect us? Well, there's three things that I would quickly like to talk about because I don't want to think about the potluck. The first one the author uh, puts in front of us is observing his example. Observing his example. And then we must trust him, and then we must obey his word. As we've noticed already in the book of Hebrews, the book is about faith. There is a weakness of faith in the audience, and the author is constantly talking to them about it. And um, So initially, the author turns to the example of Christ saying that for the joy set before him, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despised the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the Father. So when we think about the Gospels, Jesus is making his way to Calvary, to the cross. And he knows everything that's going to happen. And he's been telling his disciples, he's been predicting it, he's been referring to Old Testament prophecies about it. But as he set his face for Jerusalem for the last time, knowing that it was the last time, knowing that the Jews would turn him over to the Romans and the Romans would nail him to a cross, the author of Hebrews says that he looked beyond his suffering and death to what his suffering 
would secure what he calls the joy set before him. He was looking beyond. He didn't focus on the means that would produce this joy. He set his mind on the joy that it would produce. I wish I could do that more often. Don't you? Yeah. Jesus did exactly what the author of Hebrews told his audience to do. Jesus narrowed his focus. He set his sights on the goal, the upward call of his father. Okay? And because he focused on his father's will rather than on the offense of the Jews and the Romans, Jesus did not run from his responsibility. I'm always intrigued with the opportunity that Jesus had. You realize the night that he was betrayed and arrested, he was standing on the Mount of Olives facing east, and it was dark. He left his disciples behind him to pray. He went further out of sight. He didn't have to stop. He could have walked right down to Jericho in the middle of the night. He could have crossed the Jordan, and he could have been out of the jurisdiction of the Pharisees. But he didn't. He said, not my will, but your will. So he didn't run. And he didn't make excuses or make any other way to try to get out of it. He didn't invent another way. Remember, Satan in the temptation was trying to provide him another way. He took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He basically said to him, we can avoid all that Daniel chapter 2 nonsense of you taking over the world and ruling. He says, I'll give these kingdoms, these earthly kingdoms to you right now. And all you have to do is bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, certainly not your will, but my Father's will. Yeah. He didn't invent another way. He didn't take another way. He also, because of where his sights were, he did not revile those who reviled him. He did not sin in his course. Neither did he resist his executioners, but submitted to the will of his Father for the most horrendous kind of suffering invented by man. Because his sights were set on his Father's will beyond the suffering. He committed himself so that he could secure the joy that would come out of his suffering. Now, the text doesn't say what the joy set before him was. Uh, I think it could be a number of things, probably was. Okay, I think that it was the joy of completing the mission that his father gave him. Okay. I think of the joy of being reunited with his father. Remember, he even prayed, Lord, restore me to the glory that I had with you before time began. I think it was the, the salvation that he would secure for all believers. And I think it was the joy of the fellowship that he would have with us for eternity. I think it's a number of things. So as Jesus, I think that in his example of looking beyond, that's important to us. We need, as he did, we need to look to him beyond what we endure on earth so that we can run with endurance so that we don't get tripped up on the things of this world. You know, it's like when October rolls around and uh, the clouds and the rain roll in. If you're like me, you gotta look through it all to the spring flowers and the sunshine. Yeah, is, 
Is that normal here? People keep telling me that pretty soon you'll get web feet and everything will be fine and you look forward to the rain. Okay, collectively, I've been in Washington for 19 years. It's the craziest statement I've ever heard. Okay, I look forward to the sunshine. So, yeah, some winters I look forward to the second coming. <laughs> so, yeah, looking to Jesus' example of enduring suffering in order to obtain future joy. It's a good example for us. There's also the necessity of trusting him. Uh, all stuff that you know, uh, the necessity of faith, uh, but faith is you know, the one nece- uh, necessary ingredient that honors God, it, not just for the saving of the soul, but for the perfecting the saint in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, we don't just trust Christ to be saved, we trust Christ to be sanctified, to, be, to become holy. Okay? It's essential. Uh, without faith, this is all impossible. Uh, you can obey his word all day, but in, until you trust him, you'll never get closer to him. Yeah, I got proof of this. In Philippians 3, Paul boasted that when he was a Pharisee, he was blameless concerning the law of God. He was a good, moral person, but he was still lost. He was still lost. In spite of his mechanical obedience to the law of God, he was still separated from Christ. He was ultimately no better off as a law-abiding Jew And this is because moralism is not the real aim of Scripture. Holiness is, which of course leads to moral purity, but without faith, true holiness is absolutely unattainable. It is by faith. And so after coming to faith, Paul discovered that nothing compared to knowing Christ through faith, and he discovered that it was through faith that he experienced true righteousness and holiness. I've heard... A commentator once say that, uh, in reference to Galatians 3.24, that you know, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So the law brings us to Christ for salvation, but then Christ leads us back to the law for sanctification. I have never heard of anything more insane in all my life when it comes to New Testament theology. It's grace, you guys. It's trusting in Christ for his grace. That's the only thing. That's the only thing. Something Paul learned by experience. Yeah. Comes through faith in Jesus. Not just, uh, of course, the legal righteousness that is imputed to us at salvation, but the day-to-day practical righteousness we experience when our gaze is fixed upon him. Day-to-day. Day-to-day. Yeah. It's the thing of faith, the trust. It's the kingpin of Christianity. Without it, nothing holds together. With it, we... We gain and we enjoy a living relationship with Christ. And then through that relationship, we bear the fruit of holiness. And that is the true perfecting of the saint. That's what the author is getting at. This, uh, this kind of trust relationship with Christ, uh, he actually illustrates in John 15, 4 and 5. He says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Nothing. Yeah, we must abide in him by faith so that he can produce in us the fruit that pleases him. 
And then, of course, that leads us into the third one, which is obedience. Obedience. Yeah. That really is the hard one, isn't it? That's really the hard one. This relationship, especially if we are doing it as Paul did in Philippians chapter 3, leads to obedience to his word from the heart. From the heart. It's not coerced obedience. It's not grudging obedience. It's not guilted obedience. Faith produces loyalty that's motivated by love. Motivated by love. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. If anybody loves me, he'll keep my word. Anyone who does not love me does not keep my word. It's a statement of fact, John 14, 23 through 24. The person who loves Jesus will be in the habit of obeying his word, and when they fail to obey his word, you'll find them with a broken heart, regrouping, laying sin aside, and looking to Jesus. People that love Jesus, when they stumble and fall, they jump up, dust themselves off, and they look back to Jesus, and they start running again. They don't fall away. They love him too much to do that. So we look to Jesus' as example. We, we look to him by taking him at his word, I hope. These days, everybody just argues with his word, it seems, rather than taking it at face value. And then we look to him by obeying his word. So when Jesus says, set that aside, it will entangle you, we need to trust him and then cast it aside. When Jesus says, set your sights on me and run, we have to trust him, and then we have to run like mad, knowing that his grace will give us endurance. We must. I've heard it said, you know, trust and obey because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. This is how we are liberated from every weight and sin that so easily entangles us, and it's how we run with endurance, and it's ultimately how Jesus perfects our faith for the day that he presents us to himself. And he's going to. We cannot adopt any number of alternatives to help relieve the weight and sin. It's not going to work. Time and experience always proves that there's no substitute for taking Jesus at his word and obeying. There is no other way to run to Jesus and the truth is, he's God's only provision for the perfecting of the saint. There is nothing else. So to wrap this up, I would just say lay it aside and look with faith and obedience to the one who made the way for us. Amen? Let's pray. Are we out really early? Good, then you can fellowship and help set up. Let's pray. Go ahead and stand up. The next couple weeks, we'll be looking at suffering and trials and troubles as uh, the means by which God perfects us, the uncomfortable stuff. So. All right. Well, Father, we love you, and it's, it's obvious that we, we need you. We need your grace, Lord, to accompany us as we... Look at your instruction from the word because I'm not confident that it's really possible to fulfill your will apart from your grace. And so, Lord, help us. 
And Lord, all of us in this room, we need your grace to identify everything that needs to be laid aside. And Lord, we need the strength to lay it aside. And we need the courage to get up, to look to you, to set all of our affections on you, and to run to you with all of our might. Lord, grant us grace to do that. And help us as as your people, as your family, Lord, to be looking out for others, to be encouraging others, as Paul says, to be doing all things for edification. And Lord, I pray that as we spend our time in fellowship and around the table, Lord, help us to use that time wisely. Help us to counsel and admonish one another, to encourage one another, and Lord, to be a blessing. So Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.